so many websites online that provide health information and resources when it comes to non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short. But how can we know if they're good? Do they provide accurate information? And if they do, what are the best, most reputable sites to visit? What are some of the risks related to seeking out or being exposed to self-injury content on the internet? What are some of the positives? To answer these questions and to share some of the latest research on NSSI and the internet, I am joined today from the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada by Dr. Stephen Lewis. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. If you read any research about self-injury and the internet, or self-injury in social media, you will come across the work of Dr. Stephen Lewis. He is a pioneer in the field of self-injury, an invited member and past president of IISS, and a member of the International Consortium on Self-Injury in Educational Settings. Dr. Lewis is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Guelph. His research focuses on self-injury among youth and emerging adults, with emphasis on understanding online self-injury communication, addressing self-injury in educational settings, understanding and promoting self-injury recovery, and advocating for individuals with lived experience of self-injury. Dr. Lewis has shared his own lived experience in a TEDx talk. He's also co-founder and co-director of Self-Injury Outreach and Support, or SIOS for short. SIOS is an international nonprofit initiative providing current information and helpful resources about self-injury to those with lived experience of self-injury, as well as their caregivers and families, friends, teachers, and the health professionals who work with them. Thank you, Dr. Lewis, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Before we jump into our conversation about self-injury and the internet, I would love to learn a little bit about how you became interested in self-injury as a topic of research to begin with. Sure. So I would say that a number of factors played a role in self-injury becoming a focus in my research. I first became interested in self-injury toward the tail end of my undergrad. And at the same time in my undergrad, well, earlier on, I guess, I was myself engaging in self-injury. So to say that my lived experience didn't play a role, I think wouldn't be fair because it did. And at the time when I did become interested in this from a research perspective, one of the things that I noticed at that time was that there was some work in the area, but not nearly as much as in a number of other areas. So it really spoke to me. That spoke to me in terms of really highlighting that there's a need for self-injury research. There's a lot of misunderstanding about self-injury, which I also recognized in how people would talk about it. And with me being someone who had lived experience with it, hearing some of the things about people not understanding it, not understanding why it's done, what it might mean, those kinds of things really underscored to me the need for more research, the need for more advocacy, the need for more outreach. And in many ways, that sparked even further interest for me to really undertake this as a real focus in my research. So that became the focus of what I did in graduate school in terms of my dissertation. 
And in many ways, that just fueled my fire even further and the passion I have in the field in terms of really, I guess, guiding the work that I've done to this day with respect to really trying to blend together research in this area with lived experience perspectives, as well as advocacy and outreach. And in line with our conversation topic of self-injury in the internet, as the internet became ubiquitous and available to so many different people, including young people, then there became also content online related to self-injury, which you have spearheaded quite a bit of that research. And with the expansion of technology in the internet, there's now a lot of self-injury content online. Let's first talk about the kind of health information available online, because a lot of people are seeking their health based information through Google and other ways online. In 2014, you published the study Googling Self-Injury, the state of health information obtained through online searches for self-injury and found some troubling information. So based on that research that you had found, what is the quality or was, at least at the time, of online health information related to self-injury? Right. So I think that's, you know, that was a really important question to us at the time because a lot of the work that we had been doing really pointed to the fact that for many people, as you just mentioned, using the internet as a means to obtain information, in this case, health information, was quite common. And in that regard, we wanted to know, well, if the demand is high for this kind of information, what's the quality of information people actually get if they conduct a search for self-entry information? So we chose to focus on Google because it is the most widely used search engine and also the most widely used website globally. So what we did was we looked at different search terms and we then looked at the corresponding search results. And in our study, we only focused on the search results, basically the first page of search results. And the reason being is that for most people, if they don't see what they want in the first page of websites that come up in a search that they're conducting, they tend to use a new search term. And then they'll basically follow suit and, again, look at the first page of search results. So we focused on just those. And then what we wanted to do is we we sought to understand then, well, what's the nature of this kind of content that they're getting? And one of the concerning things we saw was that, on average, across websites that we analyzed, and we analyzed a lot, was that there was at least one NSSI myth being propagated. And myths might be things like, this is an attention-seeking behavior, or self-injury connotes that someone has mental illness, or that self-injury is a teen fad that maybe is more trivial in nature. And these kinds of myths are obviously concerning because if there's a high demand for this information, and this is the kind of information people are getting, well, they're getting bad information. The other thing we looked at was the quality of the health information on these websites. For example, on a given website, if I'm looking at self-injury material, self-injury information, is what I'm seeing grounded in research? Is it evidence-informed or research-informed? So we used a scale of one to seven. Seven would be that it's very high quality, one obviously being that it's very low quality. And what we found is that on average, websites had about a three, three and a half in terms of their rating, which told us that the health information quality, again, on average, isn't very great. And this really spoke to us in terms of really underscoring the need that when people are Googling for self-injury material or using any other search engine, that what they receive in the search results has to be of high quality. And this is critical when we consider some of the risks involved with self-injury. 
Now that we're about six, seven years after your study was published, do you know if the state of health information online about self-injury has improved? I think that's a great question. It's not a question that we have explored systematically to, at this point. It's something that we've talked about, and it's certainly on our radar. What I can say is that in some of the searches that are now conducted, some of the more reputable, high-quality information websites that either were in existence at the time of our original study or that have emerged since the publication of that study are now more readily accessible. So through a casual Google search, it is more likely you're going to find these more reputable, higher quality information websites in your search results. That's great news. And thinking about the poor health information quality that is out there, there are some risks related to self-injury content on the internet and being exposed to those risks. Can you tell us about some of the risks that are related to self-injury content that you have found or that others might find online? For sure. So we know that the impact or the potential impact of online activity relevant to self-injury, so interacting and accessing self-injury content online, that it's complex. So on the one hand, there are potential benefits, which I'm hoping we can touch on. To your question, there's also then the potential risks. And really what we see here is that there's three overarching kinds of risks that we have to sort of bear in mind. The first of which has to do with something called the reinforcement of self-injury. And what I mean by this is that if individuals who are engaging in self-injury were to access this kind of content, there is potential that they may continue to self-injure in light of some of the content that they're accessing. And I'll give a few examples, which I hope help to illustrate this. One of the things we've seen in our research is that it's not uncommon when people are accessing content online to access messages that really emphasize emotional pain, that are more melancholic or hopeless in nature, and that may speak about recovery. And I'll use that term very broadly because I think that means different things to different people. But they really situate recovery in this more sort of hopeless connotation or hopeless tone. And the concern is if people are repeatedly accessing these kinds of messages and this kind of content, that might sort of reinforce this notion or this messaging that little can be done to overcome and persevere through self-injury. So in essence, it might then reinforce it. That's one way that it might be reinforced. Another way that sometimes people think about this, and we've seen through some of our research, is through the sharing of strategies, maybe ways to self-injure or how to hide it from other people. Again, the concern here is that through repeated access to this material, it may again maintain the behavior or reinforce it over time. Another major risk that is also talked about in the literature is this notion of triggering. And basically what I mean by that is that when individuals access certain kinds of material, and commonly this would involve more graphic material, say, for example, a video or an image of self-injury, but it's not always just what they might see. It also might be sort of the detail with which something is presented. Let's say a very vivid description of an act of self-injury that someone has written out in a paragraph or two. For some people, not all, but for some people, when they interact with this kind of material, it might provoke levels of emotional upsets. It might uh, elicit urges to self-injure. And in some cases, some people have shared with us in our research that it has resulted in them actually self-injuring. So obviously that's concerning. The last area that we see of, in terms of a major area of concern here is the extent to which self-injury might be stigmatized. We know it's highly stigmatized. 
that sort of goes without saying. The concern is when people are online, some of the misinformation out there, some of the content that's out there with respect to how people who self-injure may be depicted can be quite pejorative and negative. And in essence, what happens then is it might further stigmatize individuals. It might heighten their level of self-stigma. And obviously, this is concerning too. So overall, those, I would say, we the three major risks that we see when we think about the manner by which online activity related to self-injury may impact the individual. That is very helpful information. And you had mentioned triggering content could also elicit those urges to engage in self-injury among those who already self-injure. I imagine a a number of parents might be listening and wondering if their child who has not self-injured but spends a significant amount of time online and may be pursuing or seeking out content related to self-injury might be at risk for self-injuring for the first time. Do we know, based on research, if being exposed to self-injury content online without a history of self-injury can place an individual at greater risk for beginning to self-injure? It's a really good question. I would say there's not been a ton of research in this area specifically. And I guess there's a few things that I think we have to sort of bear in mind when trying to unpack this, because it is complicated. The first of which is typically who's going to be accessing self-injury content would be someone who already self-injures, because they may be seeking it out. They may be seeking out a means to, for example, connect with other people and to gain a sense of not feeling so alone in their own experience. There has been some research which has looked at the extent to which exposure, going back to your question then, may have an impact on individuals and the potential onset of self-injury. And according to this small bit of research so far, what we see is that there is a relation between exposure to self-injury content and that individual being at higher risk for actually engaging in self-injury, perhaps relative to someone who has not accessed that content. I think we have to sort of look at this, though, very carefully and really refrain from assuming causality here. We cannot assume that just by virtue of seeing something related to self-injury, something that's maybe written in text, an image, what have you, that this somehow causes that. That's simply not the case. It's much more complicated, and it's going to be other factors which are going to play into that, perhaps ongoing mental health difficulties, having difficulty coping. So a lot of these other things are likely going to be interacting with other variables to actually contribute to someone's self to someone self-injury. To assume or to say that access to content online causes self-injury would be a massive overstatement and I think a quite a dangerous one too. That's a great point. It's so much more complex than that than simply being exposed. There's a lot more, like you had mentioned, whether that's an individual already struggling with difficulties in regulating their emotions or other mental health difficulties. These are some of the risks, but you also mentioned there are some positives to self-injury-related content online. What are some of those positives? Yeah, I think this is one of those areas which unfortunately at times is overlooked. And what we've seen through our own research is Yes, there are potential risks, but there's also potential benefits. So thinking about benefits then, there's really four sort of overarching benefits that I think warrant discussion. The first of which is that for many people who engage in self-injury, I mentioned before that we know that self-injury is stigmatized. We know that for many people who engage in self-injury, there's often a sense of feeling alone in the experience. Other people don't understand it. They don't understand you, perhaps. So many people will actually go online as a means to mitigate that sense of being isolated, 
So they'll go online to connect with other people to gain a sense of acceptance and validation that maybe they're not alone. So we've seen in our research is that this desire to mitigate this sense of social isolation can really drive online activity. And I think many people will probably agree that when people might perceive that in their offline lives, there's no support, obtaining some semblance of support and not feeling so alone online is probably not a bad thing. Another consideration when we're thinking about benefits of online activity related to self-injury is the potential for recovery encouragement. So I mentioned that in some cases, there's the potential risk that by virtue of accessing online content, that individuals might be at risk for self-injury enforcement. The opposite can also be the case, though, in the sense that people might be encouraged to recover. So there's a real need for a lot of people to hear from others who've been through an experience with self-injury to know that it can and does get better. And we've seen people actively seeking this out in some of our studies. And we see across several platforms, stories of encouragement, of hope, and of recovery, and of resilience. And by virtue of accessing these kinds of stories, we might actually be able to inspire hope about the possibility for recovery. And this is why in some of our own work, we are collating stories of recovery and putting them online because we know that many people seek this out and we know that can be beneficial. We did a study a couple of years ago where we did sort of a manipulation of YouTube comments. And basically what we did was we took a Photoshop of a mock video about self-injury on YouTube. So it was sort of a blank screen sort of before a video would actually begin. But we manipulated the comments to the video. So in one condition, we had more hopeless comments, things like recovery is impossible, you can't overcome it, once you start, you can't stop. We then had other comments which were more hopeful, acknowledging the difficulty of self-injury, but also underscoring that it's possible to overcome it. So for example, recovery might be difficult, it might take time, but you can do it, and it's well worth it if you try. So what we wanted to do is understand when people are exposed to more hopeless versus more hopeful comments, what impact might that have on their own views about their own prospect for recovery? To tell a long story short, what we found is that in the hopeless condition, there was no effect. In the hopeful condition, however, what we saw is that there was an increase in people's own hope and positive use toward their own recovery if they saw these more hopeful messages. So I think we have a real opportunity here to harness the internet as a means by which to inspire and hopefully encourage hope and recovery. Again, I use recovery quite broadly because it does mean different things to different people. The other things I would say is that in terms of benefits, for some people, being able to disclose their experience, to get it out there, can be cathartic, can be therapeutic especially if they're seeing that they're not alone. So this aspect of disclosure may also drive some people's online behavior related to self-injury. The last thing I would mention, and this also goes back to the health information website um, study that we did, and that is the potential for the dissemination and sharing of ways to cope, ways to curb urges when they actually occur. For some people, they'll go online and they'll actually seek out coping strategies. They might say things like, you know, I've been self-injuring for quite some time, and how do I cope with this? What are some of the things that you guys use that have helped you so when you have an urge, you don't act on it? So again, I think we really have an opportunity, especially if we think about just how pervasive online self-injury content is and how much people might actually go online, especially in our current context, 
to obtain information about self-injury and coping strategies, we have an opportunity to really share high-quality, research-informed strategies, which might go a long way in helping individuals to navigate through what are otherwise very difficult times. There are a number of positives then as you're sharing, and it's amazing to think about how so many people look at the internet as a risk factor for so many things, yet here we are hearing that, yes, it's both a risk factor, so there's some disadvantages, but also there's some advantages and protective factors that can help people toward recovery. I can imagine that some individuals who are really anxious and don't know how their own parents or their friends or teachers will respond to their disclosure of self-injury. And so going online and testing the waters, I know a lot of adolescents do this and a lot of individuals, even adults, will disclose certain difficulties that they face online to people they don't know in order to test the waters that they could get support and maybe gain the confidence to share that with their own family, with their own friends. Have you heard stories? in which individuals have used the internet to their advantage in testing the waters and then disclosing to their family and seeking support from family and friends? I guess the extent to which that's been studied, it hasn't really been studied very much, but anecdotally, we have seen some individuals who will perhaps share parts of their story online to try and get a sense of how others might react. And then in doing so, they may actually choose then to disclose to someone in their offline lives. For some people, they also go online to ask about how other people's experiences have gone. So they might be worried and concerned about, you know, I really want to tell my parents or tell my teacher, to my partner, whoever it might be. And I'm looking for a bit of advice in sort of how to navigate this, or I want to hear from other people in terms of how it's gone for you. So we do sort of see this a bit, again, this is a bit more anecdotal. We haven't sort of systematically examined this. But we do know the internet would be used for this kind of purpose as well. Again, I think that speaks to the potential then for us to ensure that when people seek this information out, that there's high quality information that will really try to foster and encourage people to seek support as they see fit and when it's needed. And in line with that, also ensuring that those people who could be the recipients of a disclosure also have access to high quality information so that when they are being disclosed to by someone that they know, they know how to respond effectively. Yes, the internet can be of great use. On the other hand, another challenging question that might come up is we hadn't heard a whole lot about self-injury earlier on, let's say before 1980, there were some, but in the 80s, 90s, there weren't as much as it seems to be now. And that seems to also go along with the increase in use of the internet. So I suspect some people might think that self-injury rates coincide with increase in use of the internet. This is something that we, we hear a fair bit. And again, I, I guess it harkens back in part to what I mentioned earlier about sort of this notion of by virtue of being exposed to self-injury through the internet, does this somehow cause self-injury? That's a pretty simplistic way of looking at it. And again, we have to be very careful about assuming causality. So yes, we see self-injury being quite pervasive in terms of websites and its content on social networks, etc. To assume that that has caused an increase in rates would be a significant, I think, sort of overstatement again. And again, it's also quite a very simplistic way of looking at this. We know that self-injury is discussed more today than it was going back, say, to 1980, or basically, you know, more than 20 years ago, even. And in part, what we've, what we've seen is that there's been an explosion of research in this area. 
So with an explosion of research, more attention is being focused upon it. It's talked about more. Therefore, we're going to see it present more in online contexts. Another issue here we see is that it's difficult to sort of say the extent to which we can attribute a potential increase in rates to a single source when if we go back, say, 20 years, we don't have good epidemiological data on even understanding the prevalence at that time. So it's hard then to make this comparison or assumption that somehow the internet has caused this increase in self-injury. Exactly. It's so much more complex than that. The internet and technology and even social media are easy scapegoats to use to blame the behavior or the rates of the behavior. And it's just not fair to do that because there are so many other factors and the internet and technology also has so many advantages like we have talked about today, the positives and addressing stigma as well as helpful accurate information and seeking support and recovery for individuals, however they might define recovery for themselves. We've talked a lot about different websites, or you've talked about the state of different health information websites, and there's an increase in those now. But what would you recommend as the top three, four, or maybe even five websites for obtaining good, accurate information about self-injury? I know you mentioned in the introduction the website that we've developed. So I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that, Um, but we did develop a website and in part this was in response to a lot of what we were observing through our research with respect to poor quality information at the time and really seeing a need that had to be filled with respect to ensuring that when people go online, there's a higher probability that they're going to access good quality information. So our website, Self Injury Outreach Support or SIOS or SIOutreach.org, really attempted to provide information about self-injury, but not just information to one stakeholder, but to many. So obviously we have information there for individuals with lived experience of self-injury, and we have information that's more basic. So information about what self-injury is, why it might be done, what it might mean, that kind of thing. We also have though information that might be more practical for individuals in the sense that it's information about how to cope, for example, how to cope with urges when they might happen, how to cope with the difficult emotions which might underpin or lead to an urge, but also more general well-being strategies. So we really try and emphasis, place emphasis on overall well-being versus just exclusive focus also to the self-injury. In concert with that, and going back to what I mentioned about some of the benefits of the internet, we have information there on recovery with respect to presenting messages of hope and a possibility. So we actually collect stories from people all over the globe and we share them. We share their positive messages and in some cases hopefully inspiring hope and possibility for people who might otherwise not feel that in that moment. Along these lines we have information and guidance for parents and caregivers, friends, romantic partners, school professionals, health and mental health professionals all in terms of the respective roles they have in supporting people who engage in self-injury. Things like how to respond if someone discloses to you, sort of what to do, what not to do, what's effective, what's not effective. So we have all that information on our website. In addition to our our website, though, there are many others. For example, there's Shedding Light on Self-Injury, which is based out of Australia. This has really high-quality information for health professionals and also really high-quality general information for people who want to learn more about self-injury. Janice Whitlock and her group out of Cornell University also have 
an excellent website, Self-Injury and Recovery Research is the name of it. And they have excellent information for individuals with lived experience, coping strategies, information on recovery. And again, they cover the gamut of key stakeholders in terms of providing good quality information for them and what they can do in terms of supporting someone who engages in self-injury. And obviously, I would definitely also recommend IPSS as an excellent source for information about self-injury. And there are all these resources on the IPSS webpage at itriples.org. And for the SIAS page that you have developed, you had mentioned sharing stories of hope and recovery and collating a number of those stories from all around the world. And one of those stories is a TEDx talk that you had given for anyone listening that would love to hear your story, your lived experience with self-injury. They can go to SIAS to your website and watch your TEDx talk. Is that correct? That's correct. Well, based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to parents, professionals, and people with lived experience? Let's start with parents, particularly those parents who have children that may have self-injured. Right. So for parents and caregivers of children who have engaged in self-injury, obviously finding out that your child self-injures is very difficult, and it probably comes with a host of different kinds of emotions all of which I would say are understandable reactions. In terms of what we know can be helpful, I would say there's a number of different things that are probably important to bear in mind. The first of which is to acknowledge that this can be difficult and that if you need support yourself, it's okay to seek that out. In many ways, I think this we can sort of draw the analogy to being on an airplane where you have to put your own oxygen mask on first before you help the person next to you. The same kind of logic applies here. If you want to be a good support for your child, you have to make sure that you're okay too. The other thing I would mention, I think I would probably mention here is that when we're thinking about those conversations, it's important to acknowledge that the first conversation needn't be the last, but rather is really the beginning of what I would say are multiple conversations about this. And I think part of that comes with this acknowledgement that for your child, self-injury is immensely difficult to talk about. They may have worry about your reaction. They might have worry about what it means if people find out about this, especially if they've told no one before. So I think an acknowledgement that self-injury is inherently hard to talk about is important to bear in mind. Part of it too is then validating the pain and the emotional experiences that the child is experiencing and to be able to relay that back and to do so as difficult as it may be at times, in as calm a way as possible, so as to not overreact to it, which might also in some cases then deter the child from wanting to talk about further. Part of it is also validating that self-injury serves a purpose. Young people or anyone just don't self-injure for the sake of doing it. It serves a function that has a reason. And validating that can really go a long way in communicating that we're not blaming them for doing that, And then there's an understanding that this does serve a purpose for them. Another important consideration, I think, for parents is sort of along these lines is really maintaining this open line of communication and sometimes acknowledging that that at a given moment, the child may not be ready to talk. Validate that. That's okay too. But making sure that line of communication remains open, checking back to see when might be a good time, encouraging them to come to you can also be really, really helpful. It's also important to learn about self-injury, to make sure that you have a really solid grounding and understanding in what self-injury is, why it's done, what it isn't, why it's not done, really 
targeting some of these myths that we talked about before, and really ensuring that that interaction about self-injury, those conversations can be as, as effective as possible. So when thinking about when to have those conversations, it's also important to bear in mind the timing, the location. Is this the best thing to talk about, say, on the way to school in the car? Probably not, because the conversation might get cut off pretty quickly. Making sure that you have the time, the child has the time to actually engage in the conversation and really actively listen to what they have, and then draw on some of the strategies I mentioned earlier around the validation of what they're going through and acknowledgement that this does serve a purpose for them. All of those things collectively can really go a long way in having better outcomes. What great recommendations. I think that's going to be really helpful. And based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to professionals, whether clinicians and or researchers? Right. So I think when we're thinking about, I guess, professionals, I know a large part of the focus today has been on the internet. I think from a clinical standpoint, it would be important to bear in mind and to have on your radar that when you're working with a client who engages in self-injury, they may also be engaging in online activity related to their self-injury. Being aware of that would probably be important in terms of then ensuring that those kinds of questions about, you know, is this something that's relevant for them? If so, what are they doing? What impact might that be having? And again, being cognizant that it might be potentially harmful, it might be potentially helpful. But knowing that, can go a long way in understanding the best way to support that individual and helping them work on their own recovery journey. So that insight into that would really be important. And to this end, we've actually developed some clinical guidelines, which we'd advise many um, clinicians to draw upon in terms of the kinds of questions to be asking, and then how to really incorporate this into a case formulation and to address any kind of online activity that might be more worrisome in nature. And where might they find those guidelines? In terms of finding that information, IWS's website does have resources across a number of different areas. And we do have an open access paper, which we published several years ago now, in which we offered clinical guidance with respect to addressing online activity related to self-injury. So I would encourage uh, listeners to go there. Thank you. And based on our conversation today, what recommendations would you have for people with lived experience? I would say that for people with lived experience... I think, first of all, is an acknowledgement that self-injury can indeed be very difficult. I think that's important to acknowledge because it's true for many people. That said, it's also important to bear in mind that even though it might seem like it's, you are not alone. And even though it might seem like it, there is hope. And I think it's important then to reach out to find information, to find good quality resources. And this is where I think the internet can really play a significant role. To reach out and find information on how to best foster and inspire your own recovery. And again, I use that term very loosely here because I don't want to sort of put people into sort of categories or say that recovery has to be a certain thing for everyone because it doesn't. It means different things to different people. And I think that's also a really important message to be communicated, is that somehow people might think as though recovery means X or Y, when in fact it can mean many different things. It's also important, I think, to recognize when thinking about even recovery, that recovery can take time. It certainly does take effort. It's definitely worthwhile. But it also is, in many ways, 
not necessarily linear. And what I mean by that is that there might be some setbacks along the way, and that's okay. That's actually part of the process. And I think knowing that and having that sort of recognition early on is critical. I know it certainly was for me. So I think that, you know, knowing that there are high quality resources out there, there are people out there who can and do understand the experience of self-injury and that recovery is ultimately possible. Those are, I think, essential messages for anyone who, especially those who might be struggling at presence, that they need to hear and they need to hear and hear again and again and again. What a positive way to come to an end here. And I think that means a lot coming from you as an individual with lived experience of self-injury, being able to say those very words. And my hope for us is to be able to invite you back to share your full story of your own experience with self-injury and would love to have you back for that. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Lewis, for joining us today and providing such great information, very clear points, and what great feedback and recommendations for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. And we look forward to having you back again in the near future. Thank you again for being with us. My pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe, give us a rating, and tell your friends. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at DocWesters. For all things self-injury, follow ISSS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.